Now, as I mentioned at the end of the message this afternoon, um, as far as I can find, and I'm hoping to be corrected, that the only place in Scripture where both of these titles are found um, is in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 49. Um, The Son of God, we looked at this afternoon, and the King of Israel, we shall look at this evening. And remember, as I mentioned it, that this exclamation or confession came from someone who was only recently awakened. He had only been um, 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 talked to um, by someone that said, look, I found the saviour. I found uh, the saviour of, of our people. And um, he was brought, and Nathaniel um, made this confession, uh, you are the son of God, and you are the king of Israel. And he had no problems in his mind equating the one that we saw this afternoon with what we're going to look at this evening. He, he found no problem with that. There was nothing strange or strained about that. And many of our Christian brethren today would hold with us 90% of what I said today. There's a, one of few of the things that they wouldn't hold with us on. Um, but maybe wouldn't hold with us with what we're going to look at tonight. They're quite willing to see the, Jesus Christ being the Son of God, but as the King of Israel, well, that's um, something a little different. Um, nonetheless, Nathaniel had no problem with this. As a young believer, new um, to the Saviour, not new to the Scriptures, obviously, because the Scriptures had been the foundation and the bedrock which made him confess what he did. Um, and again, um, we, we read, uh, Mr. Thomas read earlier Isaiah 9. And how many of our brethren would stand with us in verses 1 to 6? There wouldn't probably be a problem there. But when it came to verse 7, there would be a problem. Because they would not see that verse 7 should pay, be taken as literally as verse 6 is. So, the king of Israel. What have we got tonight? Well, as I usually do with you, I'm going to show you where we're going. Now, it's a vast subject, so what I've got before we go into the message, before we go into the introduction, I've got a little page of facts. I don't normally do this, but just one or two things that were thrown up during the study, and I'm just going to give them to you, and you can um, mull them over and and, and study them later at um, at, at your leisure. So I've got a little page of facts, what I'll give you. Uh, Now we're going to look at the introduction, and then, as I did this afternoon, trimming it down to three points. Uh, The King of Israel predicted, the King of Israel divine, uh, the King of Israel Christ. So that is where we're going tonight. But first of all, one or two facts for you. Um, As you probably know, 
there are at least 20 people and probably a little more that were called kings of Israel in the Bible. In fact, if you want to call the southern king of Judah Israel as well, then there were over 40 that may have held that title. Did you know there was a book, an ancient book called the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? We do not have it today, but it was there. Uh, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16, verse 14, uh, alludes to that. A third fact. The phrase is most used in one chapter of scripture. And you know, I was looking for it before we came on. I've left the digit out, so this is your homework. Um, it's in Kings chapter 20. Is it, is it first Kings or second Kings? Um, I tend to think it's first Kings. Um, and it's used 13 times in that one chapter. Just a little fact. Um, also, a fourth fact, um, without a king of Israel, Israel had many problems. Consider it. In the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, and in three other passages in the same book, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And of course, if you know your book of Judges, you'll know that it's quite a sad book, and especially the last four chapters of the book um, are, 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 are very sad times. Yeah. Um, and that's where you find these statements. Every man did that in their own eyes when there was no king in Israel. And the fifth and final fact, and this one um, struck me uh, as a hammer blow. I hadn't realised this before. It just shows you you can read over scripture and you think you've got the meaning. And uh, I haven't quite in this one. But in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 5, did you know that Moses was a king of Israel? Now I haven't misquoted here. You might think he's misquoted here. He's looking for one of the kings, but no, Moses is. And it's an unusual passage that uh, you should read it when you have time because um, uh, in verse 5 it says and he was king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. Now it's unusual in the sense because Moses is speaking here and he's speaking of himself in the third person. That's where I missed it before. I, uh, I was assuming it was speaking of the Lord, Jehovah. But uh, no, he was speaking himself. So there was a sense, not a real sense, but there was a sense in which Moses was a king of Israel. Okay, that's the fact. Let's go into our introduction tonight. Um, the, the title of our Lord, which we looked at this afternoon, uh, the Son of God, was an exclusive title. This was and is an exclusive title which could only be claimed by our Lord Jesus Christ. The only other time it's claimed by others is by false Christs today. By people like Moses, David and uh, um, David Koresh and others who have started their own sects and uh, proclaimed themselves sons of God. Um, or you have the whole sect of the Mormonism who says we all have the potentials to be sons of God. Um, now we believe in sonship, um, but not in the sense that they do, because they say we can potentially all become gods. Um, but this title 
uh, of the Lord this afternoon was exclusive. Um, as we saw, he was recognized as the Son of God by a variety of people in different circumstances. Um, as the words in a slightly different circumstance, the angel proclaimed with a loud voice, Revelation 5, verse 3, Who is worthy to open the beak and to loose the seals thereof? We ask, who is worthy to have this title? I answer to, my answer to the angel's question is, or no, the answer is, no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book. So we say to some men about this title, sorry, I've got a little muddled here, bear with me. The title we consider this evening is the King of Israel. This is not an exclusive title but was held by a number of men over many centuries. Some of these men were good men, worthy of the title. We can think of David and Solomon, again to certain degrees. Others, however, were evil in themselves and wicked in their ways and totally unworthy of the title. And in that category, we can certainly put names like uh, Jeroboam, Ahab, Jehu, some of these 20 or so names that are mentioned in the Old Testament with the quote, King of Israel, um, were kings legitimately so. Some were appointed, some inherited by birth through dynasty, some by insurrection and rebellion. Now all of these are in a contrast to the only true and real and legitimate King of Israel, our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think back to what the angel said in Revelation, who is worthy? Only the Lord Jesus Christ is truly worthy to hold the title, the King of Israel. You see, all of these other kings, all bore their rulership as servants underneath the will of God. Some did to a certain extent. Many didn't. But our Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that is truly worthy of the title. That's why that pivotal text in John 1 verse 49 by Nathaniel, Thou art the Son of God, Thou art the King of Israel. Nathaniel realized that here was the one that truly and legitimately bears this title. For his interest, the interest of our Lord Jesus Christ, is always and was always the glory and honour of the true and living God. Now, I believe that we have all of these examples of human leadership to reveal to us the weaknesses and the powerlessness of humans holding such a title. We have the good, we have the bad, we have the godly, we have the wicked, we have even the naive. 
We find examples of faults, failings, indecision, self-interest, despots. Those who were raised to such an office, even the best of them, looked to wealth, fame, influence and power. And do we not see that today? All these reality programs that are made for people today and all these quiz programs uh, so that you can win a vast sum of money in half an hour um, you can win sums of money that can change your life um, what are all these people looking for? they're looking for instant wealth instant fame it's like that remember, I don't know if some of you know that little I saw it when I was a child uh, the child's film Pinocchio and Pinocchio had a little conscience called, and it was a cricket and, um, and the cricket always felt that um, um, that, that, um, that Pinocchio had it wrong and Pinocchio felt that well, you know, the world sort of owes me a living you know, that, that the world owes me and, and has to give to me and, and little conscience you know, always um, told him no, no, it wasn't, wasn't, this, it wasn't the case of things um, that's what these kings were like. They did it very much for their own benefit. Even the best of them, David, certainly Solomon. Our Lord stands in vivid contrast by his voluntary, active and passive submission to our Heavenly Father in all things. That's scripture in Philippians. 2 verse 7 but made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men I said that in the introduction really just to show us where we're going we're not looking at those kings of Israel we're looking at the king of Israel the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to be looking at this um, by way of well, one or two things yet to come. But first of all, the king of Israel, our first section, the king of Israel predicted. Now this title and this position was always in the mind of God from all eternity and not just a late concession to human weakness and aspiration. You think the kingdom started with Samuel, with Saul? that God was doing everything else and oh this is not working we'll try something else we'll, we'll make a king um, it was always in the mind of God if you look at Genesis chapter 36 and verse 31 now that's very early in the, in the history of the people of God and of the, the nation of Israel um, but in Genesis chapter 36 verse 31 it says it gives a list there, or it has given a list in the earlier part of the chapter, of the kings of Edom. Edom, the brother of Esau. Um, and then it comes to the end of that section, and in this verse it concludes, And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. you pick up a modern commentary on that verse and it will tell you that this was a scribe 
writing some many years later and um, writing, here's all the facts, but all that was at a time when he was writing when there was a king of Israel, but that's not true. The records, uh, there are ten records in the book of Genesis, and they came at the time that they were written by the individuals that they was chosen to, to write those. Um, and in this section here, um, it is a prediction that there wasn't a king over Israel, but that there would be a king over Israel. Now, a place I do want you to turn to now is the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17 um, because there's a couple of contrasts that we want to make in this verse, um, these verses here um, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 in this passage we see a clear contrast between the human and the divine holder of the title remember these are God's requirements of a future king of Israel now if you look at Deuteronomy it's in verse um, 14 or verses 14 through 20 you will find there um, the idea of a human king now from there it looks as if they're looking for a personal choice I find a place here In Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. He gives the impression in that verse, does it not, that it's going to be a human choice. We'll get our choice here. We see what's around us. And we'll, we'll, we'll make our own choice. But notice that's not the case in verse 15. Thou shalt in any wise set a king over thee whom the Lord thy God hath chosen. So here we have it with Moses here that there is a prediction here of a king that is to come. But this king that is to come is not to be of human choice but to be of divine choice. That's the first thing. Um, why? Well, you just need to look through verses uh, 16 through 17 and you will find that a human king, when left to their own devices, will lack leadership. Verse 16. Um, verse 17, they will multiply to themselves wives. And in verse 17 also, they will look for accumulations of gold and silver. That's what a human king will be like. Whereas... The divine idea of a king in verses 16 and 17 by implication, they will not have these human ambitions. A God by God's own appointment um, will have a copy of the law of the Lord before him. Verses 18 and 19. The divine idea of a king also in verse 19 shall fear the Lord his God and also in verse 19 will keep God's law and in verse 20 a divine king will be good and fair with the promise also by God of long life. 
Now these are the predictions of the first king of Israel several hundred years before the actual events. Now there's also a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the last kings. What we looked at just now is predictions of the first king of Israel. Not of human choice, with these human ambitions, because of these reasons, a divine king. Let's look, and I thought this was interesting, just to contrast and compare the two, the last king of Israel. If you turn with uh, me to Ezekiel chapter 37. And in verse 21. Notice, in uh, verse 21, in fact, let's just read some of these verses. I think it would be profitable to do that. From verse um, 21 of chapter 37. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they have gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king among them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Um, we'll just stop there for a moment. I think you can see there that this cannot refer to what has gone before. Um, the history of Israel, um, when it was in its own land, uh, they fought amongst themselves, they divided into two nations, um, and, and there was um, um, civil war between them for many years, and one nation, one kingdom, the south, would fight against the north and would ask the Assyrians to help and the, the ones in the north would ask the, Armeni, uh, the uh, Arameans to come and help them, one to annihilate the other. Um, but this is speaking of another time. In verse 21 there, a gathering from among the nations. You see that? Um, and notice uh, uh, also a gathering in verse 21, at the end of verse 21, into their own land. Notice that is mentioned again in verse 25. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant. Verse 22 says, I will make of them one nation. <laughs> you know, the, the, they always find that um, one Jew in his own is all right, but when you get two Jews together, there is conflict. I remember being in London a number of years ago, and my daughter took me to Covent Garden. First time I'd been there, she'd been there before. She took me to another market, and uh, where we live up north, I mean, it, uh, you don't see Jews at all. Um, but I, there were two Jews in the market. One was selling, and the other one was wanting to buy. And I was fascinated by the, the techniques they were using one against the other to try and raise the price and one to try and lower the price and it, it, it was just so fascinating to watch um, but here we're going to find a unity and it's not just a unity between two Jews or between two nations of Jews or between ten tribes and two tribes but a unity of all the scattered Jews 
making one nation, according to verse 22. Verse 23, if you read in there, it tells us the nation will be cleansed. And I like it also in that verse too. It says at the end of that verse, so they shall be my people and I will be their God. God will be their God. Mentioned there also and in verse 27, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, part of that was true in the past, but there's now going to be a tabernacle in the midst. The nation shall walk in God's judgments. Verse 24. David my servant shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And verse 25 says, almost at the end of that verse, this will be forever. Just to push this point home a little more, in verse 26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And this peace, this, this peace, also in the middle of verse 26, will be an everlasting covenant. And also confirmed at the end of verse 28, forevermore. Now why we went through all this? Because this here is very definitely a prediction of the end time at the end of the age of the Gentiles at the end of the age of man there is going to be something marvellous happening well we're seeing a little bit of it happening just now the olive tree is sprouting in, in Israel um, there's a lot of problems there um, and I suppose maybe rightly so brought upon themselves but there's going to come a time where we're going to see all of this an everlasting covenant forever and peace. Now, I've said all that just to say this. Notice there's going to be a king over them. Verse 22. Um, I will make them one nation in the land and upon the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king to them all. One king. Not a dynasty of kings, not a um, one king with um, good intentions, but one king shall be over them all. So who will this be? Verse 24. And David my servant shall be king over them. Now I'm sure that some of you, not all of you, or most of you, will know that uh, the name David means beloved. So the king that is going to be, it's Hebrew. David is Hebrew for beloved. So the king that is going to be over them is the beloved. And, um, well, it's a name we're very familiar with, aren't we? Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. To the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he, God the Father, hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The Beloved is going to be king, one king, over a united Israel, and thus the king of Israel. Um, 
Notice also in verse 24 the character or nature of this king. And I like this. It's, it's very nice. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. One shepherd. Now contrast that with Jeroboam, who has continuously after he died, and that little formula that follows on thereafter, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, and mentioned again and again and again to remind us through scriptures what he was like. Think of Ahab. He was in it for the money. They found archaeologically digging into Samaria, which was his capital city, it was absolutely full of gold, silver and ivory. His, his ornaments were ivory, whereas others around were clay. Um, the kings of the, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and so on had, had ornaments of clay and, and stone. His were ivory. There was a bit of culture about that man. Um, but this, this king is going to be reigning over them. The king of Israel, the true king of Israel, is a shepherd king. I don't know if any of you have read the annals of the, the Assyrian kings, but the Assyrian kings um, used to pride themselves in that they were shepherd kings. Well, they liked that title. But if you saw what they did to their people, and especially what they did to other nations, um, they were far from being shepherds. They were more like being wolves. But our king, the beloved, is going to be a shepherd king. And he will shepherd his people. <coughs> I remember seeing a wonderful illustration once. I was in northern Greece, not far from Philippi. Um, but it was at the line of Amphipolis. And I, I was there, and it's the first time I'd seen a shepherd leading his sheep. Because in Scotland... The shepherd herds the sheep. The, 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 the shepherd is there and he has his dogs and he whistles to the dogs and different dogs know their different sounds and he has to herd them. And these sheep are very reluctant to be herded. You'll get half a dozen of them going this way and half a dozen going the other way and the dogs have to run all over the field. But I was surprised to see the biblical illustration actually working there um, at Amphipolis where I was. The sheep were following the shepherd. There was no dog there. Well, there was a dog, but the dog was there for protection from any wild animals in hell. And there are bears in northern Greece, I was told, after being climbing for a day or so. Um, the shepherd is followed. Because the shepherd is trusted. Because the shepherd is loved. Look at the kings of Israel in the past. There was friction between people, between their counsellors well, between husbands and wives also, when you think, think about Ahab and Jezebel um, as, as, as extreme illustrations um, he will be a shepherd king, a true shepherd king and remember this is the last king of Israel emphasize again in verse 25 and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David, or the beloved, shall be their prince forever. So it's going to be forever. Well, 
for as long as the kingdom lasts. We know that there is, uh, in, well, I'll mention it in just a moment. There is a, a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ is king now uh, in, in our hearts. Um, but this kingdom that we're looking upon is the kingdom at the end of the age. When the Lord returns and the kingdom is restored and Israel is restored and Israel is cleansed after they've gone through the difficult times that Mr. Tom's outlined a little bit this afternoon with the Antichrist. Um, once that's finished, there will be this thousand years of peaceful reign such as the world has never known. Have we known? There are one or two older than me here tonight. Have we ever known a time without wars? Now, I'm not just speaking about Britain, but I'm speaking about anywhere in the world at any time. If there has been, then it's been for a short time. There's been wars, there's never been peace. But we're speaking here of a universal peace. Of course, that's better described in Psalm 72. But we've taken this to show here the last king. Also, um, this king, the beloved, um, in verse 26, his sanctuary will be in their midst of them. Not only the sanctuary, but the tabernacle will be in the midst. And significantly so, in verse 28, the heathen nations will know also. So the nations that are not um, uh, Jews, the Gentile nations, shall know and recognize that beloved is the king. So, we, we see here that the king of Israel is predicted. The first kings of Israel, the human kings, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially as we looked up this afternoon when I mentioned the Old Testament references to our Lord Jesus Christ uh, as the Son of God in the Old Testament, by God the Father, not by others, but God the Father, always has a setting of the second advent. This is very similar also, the King of Israel when mentioned in the scriptures in the Old Testament has a view to the second advent. Now this goes a little further. If you turn to Hosea now, in chapter 3, uh, verses 4 and 5, that after the last human king of Israel, the nation will suffer for a long time. Well, who was the last king of Israel? Well, you will know that the last king of Israel was the one taken away to um, um, Assyrian captivity. He was taken away to captivity. His uh, eyes were taken out. No, before his eyes were taken out, his sons were killed in front of him. And then he was, uh, had his eyes taken out and he languished in an Assyrian prison for the rest of his life. Um, Hosea gives us the aftermath of that. And notice, I've, I've got there's two sections in this, this one passage, negatives and positives. Let's look at the negatives first. In verse 4, no king. That's a negative. For many days. Maybe let's put in there years. Maybe let's put in there centuries. 
Verse 2, no prince. Verse, sorry, verse 4, no prince. Um, no sacrifice, no tabernacle, no ephod, no teraphim. See the negatives. Once the human, or last king of Israel, was killed, or when he languished in prison, the nation was to suffer all of these negatives. And indeed, we can say they're suffering these negatives tonight. They don't have these things tonight. Not one of these things do they have. Oh, they would love a tabernacle or temple. But they have a problem there. The Dome of Rock is right on top. And I know that there are Jewish archaeologists digging underneath whatever purpose is, but they're digging underneath. But they do not have a temple. They cannot sacrifice. It's actually significant to know that many of these things they've actually prepared for already. They've got the temple blocks already prepared from Canada, from all places. The marble there, they're using that. They've got all of the um, uh, the, the priests' wear made, all that. You maybe saw it, it was in the Times, was it two years ago? They, they've almost bred the, the perfect red heifer. Now, you want, do you know how meticulous a Jew is? They went over that red heifer, found one white hair. One out of all the hair on the. Th- and they rejected it. Still needs a little bit more work. But they haven't got these things. They're living in the time of the negatives that Hosea has predicted here. But then there are positives. Verse 4 is the negatives. Verse 5 are all the positives. The people will return. Oh, that's echoes of Ezekiel. We just saw that. The people shall seek the Lord their God. The people shall seek, notice again, beloved, their king. The people will fear the Lord and his goodness. Well, we saw that also in Ezekiel. Now, when will all this be? Shall we speculate? No. Scriptures tell us, in the latter days. It tells us, in the latter days. So here we have, in this first section here, the king of Israel is predicted. And it is, without doubt, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that one simple illustration, the fact that he is a shepherd, makes him different from any other and every other king of Israel. Let's move further. Second section, the king of Israel is divine. Now in Psalm 89, we're going to now, we have here the psalmist. Now I'll come with you with my Bible also. In Psalm 89, we have the psalmist here and he's singing praises. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. This praise he commends to the true and pious Israelite. And also for us today, also, because these psalms are not just for Israel, they're for us. Because they're for our blessing and for our benefits also. But it was for the pious Israelite. 
Why? Why does he say this? Because the Lord is our defense and the Holy One of Israel is our king. Now, he utters this when David is the human king of Israel. So that just gives you an idea of when this psalm is, around about 1000 BC, as we saw this afternoon. Um, but he's not uttering this about David. Um, look at verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. I have formed, uh, in verse 20 also, uh, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. And then also in verse 35, this is just to prove that this this psalm was written at this time. That's why we're looking at these three verses. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. But as we continue to read this chapter of scripture, we find that as David and his reign is described, it becomes apparent that this is typical of the reign of our Lord. Look at verse 26, for example. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Now in verse 26, we have a reference here to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we say that? Or why do we say that? Or how can we say it? Um, Because it's used by the writer to the Hebrews. In chapter 1 and verse 5 of Hebrews, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here we have the Lord Jesus Christ um, being uh, predicted here in the, in, the, in the Psalms as one who is divine, father and son, as we saw this afternoon. As we continue through the rest of the psalm, we are left in no doubt that our, that our, sorry, missed a page there, that we're left in no doubt that the Father is speaking about the Son. And we have to make this distinction when we read the psalms. There are those parts which legitimately deal with David as the human king, but there are these parts which deal with the Lord Jesus Christ as the real, lone, legitimate, true king of Israel. Let's just think back to Nathaniel's confession again. Remember, Nathaniel wasn't a rustic individual. We don't know a lot about Nathaniel, but what we do know about Nathaniel was, in that passage in John's Gospel, that he was looking for the Messiah. That, that's very plain and very clear. Um, he was looking for him, maybe like us with the second adv- advent, maybe not looking for the Lord in our own age, because there are things that yet have to be fulfilled. Um, maybe Nathaniel was the same he maybe felt well you know it's not yet time ready that Messiah should come in his first advent um, but Nathaniel when he made that exclamation did it with reflection it was based upon what he'd been taught what he had learned 
So when Nathaniel says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel, he is not mistaken. He is not misled. And he's not, like some would have us believe. I've got a higher view of Scripture than that. And I've got a higher view of Nathaniel than that. That Nathaniel believed that these things were so. That what he was looking for and had been waiting for and probably praying over and meditating upon and expecting and maybe who knows maybe Nathaniel was part of that little group of, of um, Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony at that time looking for the first Advent and, um, and here he was and Nathaniel was in no doubt no doubt whatsoever he saw what we have seen today that the Old Testament speaks of a divine king of Israel because the king of Israel is the son of God now one or two statements by God before we move on to the next section in Psalm 43 verse 15 let me just read these to you because I'll just go through them very quickly I am the Lord your holy one the creator of Israel your king sorry Isaiah it's Isaiah we're in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 15 I am the Lord your holy one the creator of Israel your God so the king is divine in Isaiah 44 and verse 6 thus saith the Lord the king of Israel in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 15 the Lord hath taken away thy judgments he hath cast out thine enemy the king of Israel even the Lord is in the midst of thee thou shalt not see evil anymore so there we have it the king of Israel is divine we've seen there in those last few scriptures that we've read that God claims to be the king of Israel when our Lord became incarnate in this world he was God appearing and manifesting himself in the flesh Christ is divine also <coughs> Paul when writing to Timothy utters a glorious doxology in 1 Timothy 1.17 now unto the king eternal immortal invisible the only wise God be honour glory forever and ever Amen so that's the first two sections we've looked at the king of Israel is predicted and the king of Israel the true legitimate lone king of Israel is divine and let us look at the time that we have left to the king of Israel being Christ turn with me to the book of Timothy again I think you'll probably be there anyway just over a few more pages to chapter 6 verses 14 and 15 let us look at Paul's statements Paul the inspired apostle that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. Again in Colossians, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 13, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son? As I have it so. So we see there two things. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is recognized as a king. As well as we saw this afternoon, Son of God, which we said this afternoon wasn't just legit, wasn't just a title, because the Son of God is part of our Lord's uh, pre-existent nature. Uh, the King of Israel is a title, uh, and solely a title. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is a king. We saw that there in Timothy. And that scripture in Colossians, well, as Mr. Tom said earlier, you can't have a king without a kingdom, and vice versa. So we have Christ as the king, but we don't know yet. We've just mentioned here a king and a kingdom. Now, I think there's four sections in this last part. The first one, the church is not the kingdom of Israel. This belief by many has led to bad interpretation of scripture, the false conclusions and has always led the church in the wrong direction. We used to, in the early days, in the Christian bookshop in Forfar, have James Bannerman's book, The Church of Christ. I read it and withdrew it from the shop um, because it was totally unscriptural, yet by one of the best theologians that Scotland has produced. And... Um, and there's many in the banner of truth today that would still say that it's one of the best books on, uh, on, on the, the, the church being Israel today, but it's not. But it leads people in the wrong direction. The church has another calling. In Hebrews 3 verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly con calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. You see, our calling is a heavenly calling. It's not an earthly calling. We're not called here tonight, right, if we're Christians here tonight, well, we're the ones that should be ruling the world. Now, I know the theonomists in America uh, uh, there's not many of them left now, but there were about 10 years ago, um, wanted to make a kingdom for Christ upon the earth and appoint their king, uh, sorry, appoint their judges and, and their rulers uh, and all based upon scripture. And everything would be based upon Old Testament covenant law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the dietary um, um, religious and uh, civil laws, all that would be introduced. But that's not what we're called for, brethren. We're called to a heavenly calling. That's what we're called to from what we've been called out of, to a heavenly calling. Note the ruler that we have 
our ruler is the apostle and high priest. Now, these are, this is not the writer to the Hebrews thinking, right, we don't want to be always using the same word. You know William, William Tyndale? William Tyndale, um, who, who's, who's really the basis, 90% of our authorised versions, William Tyndale's um, translation, he was always searching to, 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 to find another word. That, that would be maybe more descriptive. He, he never always translated the, the same Hebrew word with the same English word. Um, he was always looking for an, another word, and, uh, and I can imagine him grappling away trying to think about it. Um, but the writer to the Hebrews is not doing that. He's not saying, well, I've used Son of God here, I've used King of Israel here, um, let's, I'll change it and put Apostle and High Priest of our faith in this verse. No, he's not. There's an intrinsic connection between the apostle and high priest and our heavenly calling. I think that's clear. Indeed, the destiny of the church is to rule and reign with Christ over the earthly kingdom. We'll see that in just a moment in Revelation chapter 20. Christ is going to rule over Israel, as we saw in the last section, in that age. But we shall rule and reign with him. Okay, so that's the first part of this section. The church is not the kingdom of Israel. We could spend more time on that, but time is going. The second section here, the church does have a king. We do have a king. This will have a great application in the future. But it does have a present application now. Um, in John chapter 18, but just for one uh, example, um, uh, in verse 36, when the Lord is answering Pilate, he says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So what the Lord was saying to Pilate, and I don't know if Pilate understood it or not, um, is that the physical, outward, manifest, temporary kingdom of our Lord is not now, but later. And as king now, the Lord rules in our hearts and in our lives, in our local assemblies. You see, when we meet together, is the Lord not in the midst of us? And this, the, the hymn writer didn't get it wrong when he said, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Because the Lord is King in our hearts. He is our Lord, our Prince. He is the one that we bow down to. He is the one that we worship and adore. He is the one that we lay everything at his feet. We are his subjects in that sense. But we do not take up physical arms. We do not set up a legal system based upon the Old Testament and say this is what the Lord wants now. We are not to do that. The Lord does reign in and over our lives. Thirdly, and I need you to turn to this passage now, in Daniel chapter 7, um, our third section is the king will have his kingship over Israel. 
Now in Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 through 28, we, we don't have time to read it all now. How we are reminded in this passage that we should continue to look to the Bible. Look at verse 16. And made me to know the interpretation of these things. You know, if we want to know the interpretation of these things, let us look to the scriptures. Um, um, I had the pastor over for tea a number of weeks ago, and, and after the tea, um, we, we went out for a walk. It was to walk his dog. And um, um, I told him what I was doing this year. This was my 30th anniversary of studying the scriptures, uh, taking a book a year. And this year was the book of Revelation. It was the first one I studied in 1979. Brought me to the views that I have here now, um, 1979. My guidance was Mr. James Payne. I always look at as a father that guided me in the right direction at that time. Um, so I thought, 30th anniversary, I looked at the book of Revelation. So he says to me, as we're out walking, um, what commentaries are you using? Well, I told him, I'm not using any commentaries whatsoever. I'm just looking to the, to the scriptures themselves and looking at the, the passages in close details. If I meet words that are similar, I'll compare it with that other part of the scripture or the book of Revelation and uh, I, I do that and uh, uh, and I can see the parts that were historical and have been fulfilled in the book of Revelation and I can see the parts that um, um, are yet to come in a period very intense near the end of our age and then I see the glorious parts that go way beyond um, so I said oh, I'm not using any commentaries I'm just using the scriptures and this just reminds us tonight this is what Daniel did um, he made me to know the interpretation Daniel wasn't looking anywhere else he was looking to the scriptures now um, there are two sections here um, there are a group of people called the saints of the most high they are found in verses 18, 21, 22, and verse 25. There are another group of people. And I haven't put the reference down, so I'm going to have to tell you myself. Um, which are called the people of the saints of the Most High. And if memory serves me right, it's near the end of the passage. Now, these two people are distinct and they are different. And that must be borne in mind when you look through this passage. Now, people of the saints of the Most High. Verse 27. Thank you, um, Andrew. Andrew, thank you. It's verse 27. So let's look at these distinctions. Um, first of all, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High, he shall take... Uh, the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So this group, the saints of the Most High, are going to take the kingdom and possess the kingdom. Now not, notice not be in the kingdom. I think that's the distinction here. They're going to possess it in some way. We're going to see that in just a moment, what this possession means. Um, secondly, in verse 21... And the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So here we're, we're, we're in no um, 
um, doubt as to who this group is here. The, the, the saints are those to whom this individual, the Antichrist, will fight against and will temporarily prevail over. Thirdly, in verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Now, I like these little parts and verses that give us a little time scale. And this has to be a time scale here. Because when has judgment been, has been given to the saints? Have you been given judgment yet? I certainly haven't. Except for personal judgment and things of, of um, my own life. But this is speaking of something far bigger. This is speaking about the saints possessing, taking and possessing the kingdom the kingdom of the Most High. Um, and judgment was given to them. So this is a time period. This is speaking about something that hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen later on. Fourthly, and the time came, in verse 22, at the end of it, that the saints possessed the kingdom. Well, we've seen that already. Uh, moving down to verse 25, another king shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Well, that's the Antichrist again. Sorry we don't have time to, to prove these things. And notice this will be done, verse 26, unto the end. So, what I'm just saying, when you have the opportunity, look through these, this passage. Look at these two groups and see the difference. Because, by distinction, the people of the saints of the Most High... The kingdom and dominion, and it must be verse 27 now. It's a shame I didn't put the scripture in yet. Yes, it is. That. And the kingdom and the dominion and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve him. Sorry, that's not the one. Is it one? The people of the saints of the Most High. Um, and the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the Most High. They are given the kingdom. So one or two conclusions that we can make there is that the saints possess are over the kingdom and it's an everlasting kingdom beginning at the millennium and going into eternity. It's the first part of this kingdom that the saints have rule and reign over. The people of the saints of the Most High, according to that verse, they experience the kingdom. They are, notice that's the one I've missed out. Came back to me now. It's under the whole heaven. Not the heavenly calling. They, people of the saints of the Most High, are under the heaven. It's upon the earth. It's not a heavenly kingdom. It's not a heavenly reign. It's an earthly one. And it's a temporal one because we know from the passage that we're just about to go to next that it is a limited number of years. Now, time is almost gone, but you'll be happy to know one page. Let's finish there tonight. Let us go to the book of Revelation. Um, and I think, if, if you look at chapters 19 and 20, and there is one verse in chapter 21, it will tie together everything that we've seen there in Daniel. And it will conclude our whole section on um, Christ being the king 
of Israel. Notice in verse 7, he will be king for his bride. The bride again is mentioned in verses 9 and 17. So the king will be king for his bride. So this is the new phase that is coming. The Lord is king in our hearts now, but there is going to be a new sense in the future when the king is going to be our bridegroom. We shall be the bride. Verse 7, 9 and 17 speak about the the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of course, that will be after the resurrection. First resurrection. Notice, he will also be king to smite the nations. So in the nations, when the Lord comes back again, will experience something different from ourselves. They will not be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but according to verses 15, 19, and 21, he will be a king to smite those nations. Thirdly, he will be a king to rule over the nations. Look at verse 15. We really should be reading these verses, but time has run out on us. Just bear with me on these. Fourthly, he will be king to judge the nations. So you see why all these things are dovetailing in now? What we've seen from the Old Testament, from Daniel, what we've seen from Hosea, all culminating in Christ coming and being a king in different ways to different peoples. Fifthly, he will be a king to judge the beast. Verse 20. And also, in that same verse, he will be a king to judge the false prophet. And in chapter... Um, sorry, this is chapter 20 we're in now. He will be a king to judge the great adversary. Chapter 20, verses 2 and 10. And then... He will be the king of Israel manifest. Chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. As we have seen in Daniel 7, the saints will rule and reign with him. He will be king over all the earth. And we'll close with that verse. That's in the Revelation, chapter 21, this time, and in, in verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it and the kings of the earth do bring their glory unto it now we've rushed this last section here because of time what we see is that from the beginning a king was predicted a first king a group of kings with all their faults and failings We've seen the true and only legitimate king is a divine king. It is Christ. He is Christ. He will be a shepherd king. The saints of the Most High, we shall, according to Revelation 20, we shall rule and reign with him for a thousand years over the people of the saints of the Most High who shall take the kingdom under 
king of Israel is a glorious prospect still yet to be manifested. I commend these thoughts to your thinking. Amen. Let us pray. Our great and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy word. Lord, we have had a lot of information crammed into our minds in this past hour. We have had a lot of close thinking, detail, facts, figures, dividing the scripture truly. We try in our hearts, Lord, to understand these things. We just pray, Lord, that thou would be pleased to bless even the thoughts and sentiments of these things this night, that they might be a blessing to our hearts and to our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to forgive any obscurities of your speaker tonight. For this we ask, Lord, through our Saviour's name. Amen.